to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Bullock. People, organizations, and communities need to prepare for and respond to natural and man-made disasters in a timely manner and in the most effective way possible. Our program examines what is being done before, during, and after a disaster and those unexpected events to keep you in the know. Disasters can happen to anyone. The question is, when will it happen to you? Now, here is your host, business continuity and disaster planning expert, Alex Bullock. And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to disasters, business continuity, crises, resiliency, uh, and anything that can be remotely associated with those topics. A couple of announcements. Uh, As always, if there is a specific topic you'd like us to talk about or you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you want to talk about a specific product or service that you offer, please feel free. Go to the Voice America webpage for our show, and there is a button underneath, and you can send me an email. And I do respond to everything, and we'll see about getting you on the show. And we looks like we will probably be doing a live broadcast in Fe- yeah, Phoenix, uh, Arizona this year, the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, just as we did last year. Uh, September 29th to October 2nd. I'm not sure exactly which day we'll do, but I know we'll do one day. Um, so check us out. If you're at that conference, come see us, say hello, and uh, you know, come talk for five minutes. Long-time listeners, or even if you're a new listener, um, you'll learn really quick that I like to read. I like uh, a lot of books. I have overflowing bookshelves piled on the floor. You know, um, looks like an old Englishman's library. Uh, you know, just books everywhere. A little while ago, I was going through um, some uh, new sections of books, and I came across one whose title just jumped out at me, and I knew I had to try and get um, one of the two authors here on the show. The book is titled Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Now, just from his title, you knew that had to be a topic we talked about on this show. So I'm lucky to uh, have today, I know he's very tired, he's been talking about with a lot of media today, I'd like to welcome one of the authors uh, to the show, Mr. Chris Clearfield. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me, Alex. I'm excited to be here. Um, And I I did mention that you co-wrote this book with um, another gentleman, I want to say the name right, uh, Andras Tilchik? Yeah, that's very close, yeah. So Andras... um, Andras and I have been friends for a long time, and um, we sort of had very different paths. Um, he, he is a sociologist by training. He has his PhD in sociology from, from Harvard, and I'm sort of an engineering systems guy. Um, but we, we kind of came together to, to collaborate um, on some consulting stuff and ended up writing this book together, which has been really, really fulfilling. Oh, so that's how the book came about? Yeah, I know exactly. Yep, that's how the book came about. We were sort of thinking about these issues. Um, we sort of observed that that these kind of big failures that stemmed from you know a series of small issues that kind of snowballed into these big events, there seemed to be more and more of that happening in the world. And we were interested in understanding both sort of why that happened from the kind of systems perspective, but also you know what organizations and teams and individuals were able to do to. Um, prevent that and why some teams perform better better than others uh, in, in those kind of contexts. Well, like I said, just by its title, I had to get my hands on this and, and reach out to you, to both of you and try and get one of you here. So I'm glad I, I got you. 
Um, before we jump into uh, you know the topic of the book any further, can you give our listeners a little bit of a, a bio on yourself? You know what you do, you know, and how you got to, to where you are today. Sure, totally. Um, so you know, I, w- I was always a science kid um, growing up, and then I um, I went to uh, Harvard for my undergraduate degree. I studied physics and biology, and I sort of always assumed I would go and do a PhD in, in something sciencey, but. Um, really through a bunch of coincidences, I ended up working on Wall Street. And I, I started out doing kind of trading and, you know, using computers to, to figure out how to make money. Um, and then that my, my role kind of morphed over time to thinking more on the systems level, thinking more about, you know, how these how these systems work together and, and kind of what the risks were that, that arose from that. Um, so interestingly, I, you know, I had this I had this front row seat during the financial crisis and uh noted that that some organizations really did a much better job of managing that crisis than others. And I thought that was interesting, you know, without being, without working at all these places, I had a guess of who was going to do better at managing the crisis than, than, you know, their, than their peers in the industry. And that was kind of an interesting observation because it's interesting Mm. to just to, to suppose that from the outside, we'd be able to say anything tangible about, you know how how a, how a big company manages manages these kind of big risks, um, and then I'm also a pilot, so I, I have this kind of very you know visceral interest in understanding um, understanding why failure happens and 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 how we can think about it, uh, and and really all of this stuff came to a head in 2010 when the BP Deepwater Horizon uh, accident mm-hmm. happened when that oil rig exploded yeah. in the Gulf. Um, and you know, it just it struck me that that um, two things really struck me. One, that wow, this is really the same kind of accident as we see in you know airplane crashes and and really even the financial crisis, where it was this sort of series of small failures that that led to this really really big devastating failure. Um, and the other thing I thought was that um, you know it 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 really could have been a a petroleum engineer who who worked on that rig or who was part of that project team and said. You know, no, we need to do this a different way. I mean, they they could have been the the greatest environmentalist of the of the twenty first century, and we we never would have mm-hmm. heard their name, of course. But um, but it's it's just it was an interesting kind of counterfactual to consider. And so uh, I teamed up with Andras, and and he and I really started to to sort of dig into these issues and and try to understand them more systematically. And I guess being a pilot, you really have to be fully aware and well versed on systems, right? Like that's got to be a skill that you know you can't uh, half half you know can't use the word but half fake that right right if you know what I mean <laughs> right yeah totally I, and it's interesting you know now now I'm actually an instructor and so I, I teach people and um, you know even in small airplanes there's a real emphasis on understanding the systems because if you understand the systems that's what helps you troubleshoot things that's what helps you understand things um, mm-hmm. and that can sort of be um, you know that that's that's what helps you kind of anticipate the sort of things that that might go wrong uh, before they before they kind of chain together and and you know go really wrong. Well, you've said the word a couple of times, and I know the word is in your uh, book title, "Why Our Systems Fail." Here, um, from Meltdown. So, how do you define systems? Is it just IT? Is it procedures? Because um, in my view, it can cover a lot. But what what do you mean by systems? I think it's a it's a great question. I, I think we use the term pretty expansively. Um, I, you know, I think of a system as really anything where 
the connections between the parts matter matter as much or more than the parts themselves. So um, that's a pretty kind of broad definition, but but let's break that down a little bit. You know, um, a car is a system, right? It's where you have all of these interacting components that are all sort of moving together in the same direction to kind of accomplish this goal. Um, within that, you can have smaller systems. You can have subsystems around, you know, the engine and the brakes and, and the steering and all these different these, these different sort of pieces. But um, I think the key thing is where um, it's really the, it's the interaction between these things that makes stuff happen. Um, and also you can really, I mean, you can think of organizations as a system too, right? Organizations mm-hmm. are, you know, groups of people that come together and interact. And one of the things that we focus on is this idea of complexity within systems. So, you know, it's, it's where the system is put together in a way that looks more like an elaborate web than an assembly line. So it's not a linear connection. It's a bunch of different connections. And sometimes connections you don't even know that can be made. Um, and it's in those complex systems that we see these kind of unanticipated consequences, these sort of unexpected things that can turn into a failure. Just sort of a small thing can kind of propagate through the system and, and kind of blow up into a big failure. That, you just got me thinking. I'm going to jump off the what our little outline is here today. Um, you said it's not linear, that it's quite uh, complex, and you mentioned organizations. Does that mean that a system can be um, between two organizations or more you know, organizations, it, you know, like a supplier to a manufacturer and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and in fact, when we do consulting work, you know, that's actually one of the big places where we um, – we help people understand kind of how these, you know, how these failure stories emerge. And, and one of the places that they emerge is uh, through organizational boundaries, right? When, when some person is passing off a project or a piece of data or even an expectation to another team or another group, that's where you can have these miscommunications arise. And it can happen between, you know, between vendors, between different groups. Um, it can happen between governments at different levels or, or, you know, between the fire service and the police or between fire service from different jurisdictions, things like that. Well, I, I also work in program and project management. And what you just said, you know, I, I wish I could take that sign and put it up on every wall because it happens every time, miscommunication but with vendors or between departments, you know, or even just single stakeholders in the same room. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, a lot of our, I think one of the big challenges and one of the things that we kind of advocate for over and over is that um, the companies that are going to be successful, the projects are gonna, that are going to be successful um, are, are the teams that are able to, kind of acknowledge and, and thrive in this complexity head on. And I think one of the challenges is that even though our world is much more interconnected than it used to be, even, you know, even a decade ago, let alone going back, you know, 30, 40 years, um, a lot of our techniques for managing products and, and, and programs and processes really have remained the same. And so we're sort of, we're kind of bringing the wrong tools to the, to the, to the, the project in some sense. Well, that that leads us into the the very next question that I had. So, what causes our systems to be so complex? Then, you know, by bringing things in, what 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 causes it? Well, you know, I mean, there's actually great reasons for complexity, right? I mean, we we sort of we talk about in the book, we talk about this paradox of progress, where, um, you know, the way that our systems are built these days really give us these great capabilities. Um, they give us this ability to, um, you know. 
I mean, deliver products, you know, at, at, at scale in efficient ways. If you think about like a shipping network, for example, or, you know, how a company might do something like just-in-time supply chain um, logistics. Like, that's an incredible mm-hmm. capability. Um, but what it requires is it requires things, you know, it requires a sort of different type of connections and, and a, different, a different kind of comfort with being just-in-time than I think we were, we were years ago. So a lot of this complexity comes from increased capabilities. And, you know, there's, there's another bit I'd like to mention, which is um, this idea we have in the book called tight coupling, which, you know, we, we've, um, it has these kind of deep roots in um, how engineers think about systems. And, and tight coupling is really just this idea that, that there's not a lot of um, slack in a system. So when something starts to go wrong, it, it, it tends to keep going wrong. It's hard to um, it's hard to be able to respond in time or with enough capacity to kind of prevent the problems as they as they as they happen to fix the problems before they they become these big errors. And you know we're we're not the we're not the first people to talk about this in these terms. We we um, drew on the framework of a guy called Charles Perot, who was a a sociologist that that studied the Three Mile Island nuclear meltdown um, in, in 1979 and looked at why that accident happened. And, and, you know, the official conclusion was that it was operator error, that the operators didn't respond in the right way. And what Perot argued was that, you know, actually this was the system's failure. This whole system sat in this kind of danger zone where it was very complex. So there were these interactions that were hard to understand and it was tightly coupled. So when things started to go wrong, they were likely to continue going wrong. And that, in fact, the causes of the accident, you know, weren't known until, the, the, the investigatory commission spent, you know, nine months digging into things. So you can't possibly blame the operators for not making the, you know, the quote unquote right decision in real time when, when the logic of the accident wasn't even understood until years later. Is, is that because we rely too much on the IT component to do that for us? Um, that's a good question. Can you, can you kind of, can you say more about that? Well, if, if it's, you know, it's, with Three Mile Island, they were saying that uh, you mentioned that you know they're saying it was operator error. Could it be? And, and I'm not pointing a finger at all. I'm, I'm just uh, saying here that um, because we have so many different systems in place uh, that are IT focused, and you know we have our uh, cell phones and all this and that, that we've become too comfortable to. We have a false sense of security that the IT will take care of us. <clears throat> Sorry, losing my voice here. That IT will take care of it for us. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So, you know, I think that, that Three Mile Island was complex because, um, because nuclear power is this inherently complex technology, right? And it, and it was tightly coupled because, um, you know, the physics of nuclear reactions means that you, you can't sort of, you can't put the, there's no pause button on the reactor, right? You can't, you yeah. know, the, the, the reaction continues even, even as you, you know, start to, to, kind of cool the reactor down that but that takes days mm-hmm. so you need to kind of keep removing that heat but i think your i think your your bigger point is one that um we do see reflected all the time right so from everything from the way that our i mean i i bet a lot of listeners will have the experience um of being in a modern car and having it do something that they find unexpected right um you know my car has a, a front-facing camera that has an automatic braking system and um Often it's quite good, but sometimes, you know, if I'm going around a, a curve or something, it will misinterpret um, that as a, an object stopped in front of me and, mm-hmm. and will, you know, sometimes tap on the brakes. And 
that is definitely an aspect of the kind of the technology and the capability introducing these unintended consequences. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, we're going to end our first segment on that note. We are talking with author Chris Clearfield and his, uh, well, co-author, I should say, uh, with Andres Tilchik and their book, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Who claim to be dog experts, yet they don't really provide a connection between dog owners and their best friend. This is where the BS stops. Listen for Taming the Wild and Your Dog with expert author and nationally recognized dog trainer Brian Bailey. Each show has experts, professional trainers, and veterinarians to give you the right answers. Listen for the safety and well-being of your dog. Listen every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fullen. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Chris Clearfield, one of the authors of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail, and What We Can Do About It. Chris, in our first segment, you gave us a lot of uh, good information about systems. Um, I had one more question for you um, to continue on. What contributes to the continued complexity of our systems? You know, why do they get so complex? Yeah, I, I think that there's sort of two ways of, of kind of framing an answer to that. One way is that they get more complex because we're adding more capabilities, right? We're adding safety systems. We're adding, you know, the ability to do new things. We're innovating on how we, you know, um, structure a network to deliver, you know, products or, or processes quickly. Um, and a lot of that has the, the sort of consequence of adding complexity to our systems, making the networks um, more interconnected rather and, and less linear. So, so that's half of the answer. But I think the other half of the answer is that um, uh, engineers um, and, and the people that are embedded in these systems don't often think about complexity in an explicit enough way. 
And what I mean by that is there's really a cost of complexity, and, and we can really account for that cost um, by thinking about what the consequences are. But, you know, manufacturers and, and business people, they will um, add features without regard to the, the cost of that complexity. So I mentioned cars before. I'll, I'll give you an example. I have a, a 2016 Subaru Outback, and I can look up stock prices on my dashboard. And I have no idea why anyone would want to do this. Um, <laughs> but it's a feature in the car. And it seems like a harmless feature, but, but you kind of realize that, well, it implies that there's a cellular connection embedded in that, in that car. And again, that seems like just a capability, but what that's doing is taking this piece of very, you know, already very complex hardware and, and networking it in the world. And we've actually seen examples of, of, and we write about this in the book, examples of hackers who, you know, are able to remotely control a car through the cellular connection and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, muck with some of the core features like the transmission as the car is driving down the highway. Um, unfortunately, the hackers that did that were sort of, you know, they were good guys. They were white hat hackers. But I think it just goes to, it's just an example of this idea that, that we, we don't build in complexity, whether that's in a piece of technology or in our business processes. We don't consider it a, an explicit variable um, kind of qu- quite often enough. Is that because we, we don't, uh, should I say this, plan well, or we don't really uh, investigate the repercussions of what we're doing? We'd rather put a fancy bell and whistle on something so that it looks good and we can sell it for more rather than understanding the consequences of what it might cause? I don't want to paint too broad a brush. I mean, you know, there are hmm. definitely people who, who do uh, think very, very carefully about these issues. But um, mm-hmm. I, I guess that this is such a feature of, of our modern society that um, it's, it, to me it feels like it's almost not enough anymore that, that some people think about it. I mean, I think it's got to be front and center for so much of our decision-making these days. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so, um, my next question I was going to ask you is because I thought this was rather interesting. I found it in your book here. Do we fail our systems or do our systems fail us? And I think you kind of touched on this a little bit with regards to some of the, uh, the three mile Island example and the, um, uh, event horizon example. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think the way I would, the way I would put it is, um, I, you know, I'm a big fan of, of the both and answer, right? The, the way I would put it is we are often, in the way that our systems are designed because of the complexity that, that we um, sometimes introduce at the design level, the engineering level, you know, even the business level, um, we can end up with these systems where we end up expecting too much of the people who are, who are embedded in it. So um, I think aviation is a great example. And, 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 you know, right now what's top of my mind is, is um, the the recent crashes of the Boeing 737 Max, uh, which is an incredibly sophisticated airplane, and it's an airplane where to to kind of develop it and Boeing, you know, had more efficient engines, which meant they had to make some design changes. And, and one of the ways they did that is by inputting this automatic system that um, you know helped in, in, in it was a safety system. It was to to help prevent the airplane from kind of flying outside of the design envelope, essentially, and. You know, so that sounds great, but when that system malfunctioned, as, as it's pretty clear that it did in the case of the the Lion Air crash that happened in, in October, um, when, when that system malfunctions, suddenly the flight crew, suddenly the pilots are put in a position where, you know, 
they have to, they are startled, right? And, and um, they respond as imperfect humans sometimes do mm-hmm. uh, by not being rational in the moment, by not doing the right thing. And, and that's a tough position to, to, to be in. Is it, again, that kind of gets me thinking about that false sense of security, right? By, if pilots are all of a sudden, um, you know, surprised that, hey, this isn't working all of a sudden, you know, is that, you know, would that, those same feelings happen today as they would on an airplane in the 60s? Would a pilot feel the same way? Mm, it's a great question. I think that, I think that the answer is probably, I mean, I, I'm sure it happens sometimes in the 60s, but I think that the answer mm-hmm. is um, the set of challenges in the 60s were, were kind of a different set of challenges. It was, it, mm. it, it was um, more like managing the communication between the flight crew and managing the workload, which is still very much top of mind. But um, I think that there were probably fewer, um, fewer instances of, of what we think of as pilots as the the kind of automate what's called automation surprise, just the the plane doing something. And this can happen from, you know, small airplanes to, to the airliners that we fly in commercially, the plane doing something and the reaction of the pilots is, why is it doing that? Um, and, and I think the less automation that there was in airplanes, the less likely that kind of, that kind of surprise was to happen. So yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So how do we improve that? You know, if, if there's all these safety systems, and we'll stay with the uh, the example of an airplane for now, uh, if we have all these safety systems and something goes wrong, is there some sort of a skill we need to, uh, or, or some sort of scenario-based testing that we should go through, uh, you know, for pilots to say, you know, even though you have this, the you know, no matter how remote, here is, you know, a, a potential uh, situation. I mean, let, let, let me frame that, that kind of question more broadly, because I think, you know, okay. we've been talking all about failure, but, but most of the book is actually about how to manage complexity, how to reduce it, mm-hmm. and, and how teams can work better with it. Um, and, and I think with aviation, it's important to note that, you know, aviation is, is far and away the safest form of transportation that humans have ever designed. I mean, it's just, it's kind of unthinkably safe to, to the point where, um, you know, it's it, it, the, by far the, 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 the least safe part of any trip is the drive to the airport, right? Just kind of from a statistical perspective. So in aviation, we already do a great job of, of getting crews to kind of work together and, and be good at this, despite these sort of anomalous crashes that, that we see. And I actually think that's, a, that's kind of a nice way of, of jumping off. I mean, we know that manufacturers, you know, the story we were just talking about uh, uh, kind of is, is sort of stands out because of its um, because it's anomalous in some sense that you know manufacturers think very carefully about how to keep complexity in the cockpit down to a minimum, how to keep the flight crew in the loop so they know what's going on. But you know the other thing that's really interesting that I, that I think is is a real lesson from aviation to to the rest of business is um, is is really the two things. One is getting people to speak up about their concerns. I mean, that is a tremendously valuable way of, of creating safety in complex systems. If you have, if people feel comfortable saying, hey, I don't understand this, or, or hey, this seems like a problem to me, then you'll be in a situation where there might be a small error that starts to bubble up, but then somebody points it out. And even just that pointing it out means that teams are more likely to come together to fix it. So that's one, I think, real strong lesson. Aviation went through this transformation in the 70s and 80s, where they went from 
you know, this model where the sort of the captain is king and, and his word mm-hmm. it was mostly a him, um, his word is law, to this model where it's a very collaborative environment. And, and I think we need to see more of that kind of safety and willingness to speak up in, in all of our businesses. Um, so and so is that, that's a little bit of a, a change in ahead, uh, corporate sorry. culture. Sorry, that, that's a little bit of yes. change in corporate culture for many places, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, it's easy to say, it's easy to talk about, it's very hard to do. Um, mm. uh, you know, a, a friend of ours who's a, a 737 captain and, and a, uh, an accident investigator, you know, the way he puts it is he says, if you shoot the messenger then, you know, nobody's going nobody's gonna to tell you what's wrong in the system anymore. And, and that's a really dangerous position to be in. And I think that's what we, that's what we see in, in the aftermath of some of these accidents. And, and it is a big change in corporate culture. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's sort of, it's a simple change, but that doesn't mean that it's an easy change. That's right. So I, sorry, I had, I had to get that point in there because there's a lot of talk, uh, you know, about executives and corporate culture and trying to get this disaster mindset you know, with executives. So I had to jump in there while it was on my mind. <laughs> no, I, I think, I think it's a, it's a perfect point. I, I think it's, it's very well, it's very well spotted, very well said. So uh, the, the first point is uh, getting people to speak up. And so what was the second pe- uh, point that you wanted to bring forward? The, the second point, I think that where, where we really see a strong example um, from aviation, which has done this incredibly, incredibly successfully is, um, creating creating a learning environment, creating a, a whole industry that that is really geared towards learning, creating um, uh, you know airlines and and, and pilots and, and um, manufacturers and, and even regulators who, generally speaking, work together in this collaborative way to understand small errors before they become big ones, and and to to fix those problems before they you know, before they, they spiral out of control. And, and I think that's, that's really something, that's really a lesson that we can learn from um, our, our, you know, in our companies too. And, you know, we work with some companies that, that come to us because um, they, you know, they, they want to learn better from, from the errors that they have. Um, sometimes these are, are kind of business questions, but sometimes they are, you know, technology questions. Um, uh, a firm who, you know, is a technology company who, um, knows that they they have a process, say to to you know talk about what happens when their web server goes down or when somebody pushes out a piece of buggy code, um, but they know that that process could be improved and and they could really get kind of a higher return on investment from these kind of um, engineering postmortems, if you will. And and that's a great that's a great thing to to sort of think about that you know in a complex system you can't ahead of time talk about all the ways the system might fail. So. Mm-hmm. One of the things we can do is we can learn from the small ways that the system is telling us that it can fail. Do you have any recommendations how to how to really um, utilize like lessons learned? Because I, I I'm sure you've seen it, you know, in what you do. People say, yeah, we we've got this lesson learned process or system, you know, in place, and the next program or project comes along and they experience the exact same thing. So, do you have any recommendations how to really utilize lessons learned yes um i'm i'm glad you asked um there there are ways to do it and and one of the ways to do it is to is to do the loop like if you can think about it as a learning loop to 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 sort of do two things one is to um don't leave the loop till the end right have the loop be sort of event driven so um you know if you misinterpreted something that somebody said 
well, then, you know, kind of address that right away rather than letting the whole project continue with that, with that sort of in the air, um, uh, and, you know, until the end. I guess another way to put it is, you know, one of the things that, that we learned about in the book is, is how, um, when we were doing the research, is, is how effective teams kind of manage, manage crises. Um, and, and, and they sort of go through this loop of, you know, coming up with a guess of what the problem is, um, uh, trying a solution, and then seeing if that solution works, and then refining their guess of what the problem is. And, and you can see that it's a loop, so it, it sort of, you know, it could start with just trying something, and then mm-hmm. seeing what happens, and then refining your guess of what the problem is. And, and that way of iterating... I mean, I think one of the challenges of the kind of big, you know, project after action is that um, it's just too infrequent, right? So you can't really incorporate right. the learning. And then by the time you get to a similar project that, that is like that, everybody's kind of forgotten about what happened in, in, the, in the first round. So that's one way, I think, to, to think about it. Have this not be a, you know, a postmortem that happens at the end of a project, but have it be kind of a, a, a weekly, you know, or a, and even a daily, what worked well, what didn't work well, what are we going to try next time? Um, but that, that, again, back to your earlier point, that really requires that, that culture that supports that. People have to be able to raise their hand and say, hey, I, I messed this up. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you've worked on projects and programs, I'm sure, as well. And by the time you get to the end of the lessons learned, half the team is gone. You know, and your your memory of uh, po- a potential uh, really good lesson learned that you can utilize and you know implement has been forgotten or completely um, misinterpreted. You know, months or year down the road. Totally, totally. Yeah, no, I I, I said that. I think that's 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 a, a a great way of putting it. So you know, that's the other thing to think about too. It's sort of. Um, enshrining these lessons through stories, right? So humans learn very, very powerfully from stories, and we learn very, very powerfully from, from analogies. So if you can make this kind of storytelling a central part of your culture, then you actually can do a much better job of sort of um, tying in what your challenges are with, with the kind of learning that people can actually do. So I, I think that's a really um, a kind of positive way to, to sort of think about it, too. That's interesting. You mentioned story storytelling and analogies. Is would you use that to help strengthen our systems? Not just from lessons well, learned. Well, totally, but you right? Use that? Yeah, and 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 I think one of the ways that we use that is is the other part of the learning loop, which is um, paying attention to these small issues before they become big ones. Um, and this researchers call this anomalizing. Um, and, and I think it's a really interesting uh, way to think about the world. It's basically treating these small errors um, as if they are the like the an important part of your system rather than a side effect you can ignore. Um, mm-hmm. And and one of the ways that I think these two concepts tie together is that you know there are so many um, you don't have to learn from your you don't just have to learn from your own failures. You can mm-hmm. also learn from the stories of other people's failures, right? And I think in some ways. That's almost easier because if you're if you're sort of outside of an industry, if you're outside of, of a of the context of an operation, you can sort of start to see some of the simplifying assumptions that got built into the way that people approach things, and so that can be a um, 
a powerful way to learn from the kind of learn from other people's stories is almost one way to say it. Yeah, read the headlines, find out what they're doing, you know, the conferences, there's all kinds of ways, you know, to to learn that. I think that's a really good point. So we've come to the end of our second segment. We are talking with uh, the co-author, Chris Clearfield of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. We'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus, creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, Book 18. Rachel Carson in The Sea Around Us said, All at last, return to the sea. To Oceanus, the ocean river, like the ever-flowing stream of time, the beginning and the end. Moyer's Environmental Dialogues with Dr. Rob Moyer offers lively dialogue and revealing narrative inquiry into how individuals are overcoming obstacles and creating a greener and blue planet Earth. Tune in Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com Again, that's I-N-F-O at stone-road.com Now back to Preparing for the Unexpected. And welcome back to the show. We are talking with Chris Clearfield, the co-author of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. Chris, you were giving us some great information um, in both two uh, first first and second segments here. Um, I've got to... I'm wondering about, you know, the the fast pace of uh, technology these days. Is that hindering or helping our systems? I know you've mentioned it already makes it complex, but because things change so fast, is it be even more of a hindrance to our systems that opens us, opens us up to, um, uh, what can we say, um, risks that we may not actually know are there because our systems are so complex? Um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, what we see is we see that it's, it's not just the pace of, of technological change. It's this kind of um, this sort of ex- acceleration of specifically complexity being being kind of increased and, and introduced. So, um, you know, we talked about cars that are now connected, but, you know, so are washers and dryers and, and so are appliances and, and things like this. And I think, you know, that's a great example where 
we've taken these these machines that are you know well tested and tried and true and sort of do one thing and do it well and and we've networked them and and now that means they're part of this global ecosystem and you know I just think it's it's sort of fascinating because um, you know one one of the things we sort of think about and, and and kind of play with in the book is this idea of well you know traditionally when people think about things like um, uh, critical infrastructure you know what they're thinking about is big things like dams and and, and bridges and tunnels and you know the, the sort of the sort of big you know kind of banner projects that that a region might have um, mm-hmm. but what I like to think about is you know even if you had a, a relatively a medium-sized city, you know, 200,000, 500,000 people, um, you could easily imagine there being, you know, 5,000, you know, connected smart washer and dryers in, in, that, in that city. And um, if those, for some reason, are designed in such a way that, you know, a hacker can, can take control of them and, and can sort of spin them up in a way that, you know, causes the motor to catch on fire and, and you know, maybe some percentage of them um, you know, spreads to a, 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 a house fire or something. That's, you know, we've all of a sudden created this link that actually makes a, a, a much bigger piece of, of critical infrastructure that we've never thought about in that way. And so, you know, that's a place where technology, I think, um, plays a role. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't think of myself as a Luddite, although I, I, I am a skeptic in some of these contexts. Um, <laughs> but we also see places where, you know, technology in, in, in technology companies, for example, I mean, places like Google, you know, you'll notice that their site is never, ever, ever, ever down, right? I mean, they have just this unreal uptime, might be down for a second, but then they've got this failover. And what they've done is they've built this into their process naturally. So that's kind of, I think, another lesson as we think about systems. If we're trying to make redundant systems, We've got to build that redundancy. We've got to build that safety in from the beginning because otherwise we'll be left with a, um, we'll, we'll be left with these sort of bolt on additions that actually themselves add complexity and become a source of, of risk. As we see in this, in this Boeing 737 MAX example that we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned redundancy. Um, I'm sure you've experienced this that, uh, you know, disaster recovery or, you know, redundant systems is looked at at the end of a, an initiative, you know, mm-hmm. when, when people are gone, you know, and, and you just mentioned, you know, you, you have to start that at the beginning. Right. It's got to be, it's got to be built in, in from the beginning. Um, you know, we were, we worked with a firm in, in New York city that spent, um, you know, I don't know, uh, you know, millions of dollars on a, on a backup generator for, this is a finance firm. So for some of their finance infrastructure, uh, in lower Manhattan. And, you know, that generator would have worked just fine if there had been, you know, if the, if the problem was power outages, right? If there was a rolling, mm-hmm. rolling brownouts in the city, that gen set would have been, would have been great. But it didn't work fine when, you know, Hurricane Sandy came and, um, the entire office building was closed because it was inundated with, with water. And it took, you know, a month or six weeks for, for it to get, um, for, for the ground floors to sort of the water to recede, to get pumped out. And, and so, you know, it's just, this, it's just an interesting example of where, where we think about um, the term that we, we think about it in, the term that we think about it in, or this idea of, of illusory redundancy, where, you know, you have this bit of redundancy, but, but it's, it's vulnerable to the same kind of failure that it's designed to protect. And, and then almost even worse than that, some of the times it itself becomes a source of that failure or a source of complexity. True. Yes. 
Well, that actually leads me to a, a different kind of question I was going to ask. Uh, when that happens, you know, redundancy at the end, or they don't think about redundancy properly, you know, is it because we're maybe looking at for a quick fix? You know, we want to get something out there, want to get something to market. You know, we want to strengthen our system, and then we'll worry about you know if something goes wrong. Yeah, you know, I think I think one way I think that's a part of it, and I, I think one way to think about this question is like. How do we define, like, what's, what is the minimum part of our system that actually needs to be redundant? And how do we define that? Mm-hmm. And how do we think about that? You know, um, adding, adding a bunch of, um, you know, scalability or, or safety systems where they're not needed um, actually right, adds complexity and, and creates vulnerability across our whole system. And I think one of the things that, that um, we need to think about as we design these systems, and, and one of the things we do is, you know, we, we work with people who are designing these kind of systems, is, you know, setting the bar so you have this, this set of things that you just accept are going to fail, and there's some risk of it, and, and you set up your system so that that's, that's a totally fine outcome. Mm-hmm. So let's move to, uh, I wanted to talk about oversight. Because the more complex our systems become, and you know, and what we can do about them, when you know, just like your book says, there's got to be more oversight, correct? And what would you recommend uh, on on doing that? I think you've touched on a couple, but well, tell me, tell me what you mean by the word the word oversight. Can you talk a little about that? Um, oversight and and governance. You know, um, we we rush to put all these complex systems together, but we don't really. Um, pay attention too much to uh, potential risks. You know, I'll put it in project management terms. You know, mm-hmm. you know sure. do, do we need to be more um, more uh, aware and governance to make sure you know we do have our T's crossed and all our I's dotted before we move on to the next piece? That's a great question. I, I think I would put it in different terms, and, and what I would say is mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, the, the, the governance model, if you will, that we need to, to manage complex systems effectively is actually, it's not about dotting I's and crossing T's in some sense. I mean, you know, of course that's important mm-hmm. in, in different contexts and in different organizations, but, you know, the problems of complexity aren't specifically really aren't problems that we can write a procedure for. They are, they are the unexpected problems that arise. So, you know, I would say that the, the, if I think about it from a governance perspective, what I think about is how do we, from how do we get our decision making as to, to the lowest possible level of the organization that we can, and and to indi- you know how do we get the decision making to individuals who know as much as they as possible about the systems, and and how do we kind of acknowledge the real trade offs that people work with every day between you know, how efficient they, they want their system to be, how thorough they want to, they, they want to solve the problem. And, and, and so I guess what I would say is, you know, I think the real benefit of, or the real, the real way that, that I tend to think about governance is, is not that it's sort of this top-down thing, but, but what we need to do a better job of is, is kind of defining the kind of decisions that, that people can make um, and, and letting people make all of the decisions um, that are sort of easily reversible and, and kind of, you know, relatively simple to and, and aren't going to cause a big problem, delegating them as much as possible so we don't have as many I's to dot or T's to cross in the first place. Is that kind of going back to that corporate culture shift or part of that? Absolutely, right. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's no coincidence that the, the kind of things that help companies be better at um, managing these kind of risks are the things that um, also help companies be better at innovating, right? Help, com- help mm-hmm. groups of people feel comfortable, um, you know, taking, taking, taking risks and, 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 and uh, create organizations that celebrate failure. Um, I've talked with people, for example, who, who work at Amazon uh, and, and have worked on the, I don't know if you remember, but Amazon had this, this Fire Phone project, this sort of um, competitor, you know, smartphone competitor. And, oh, yes. and the project was really, I mean, from a, from a business perspective, it was a big failure. But um, where Amazon succeeded incredibly in that context was by taking the teams that were involved and, and celebrating their work and celebrating that failure. And, and, and that's not something you see very often. And, and what that does, you know, that has such a power. We talked about culture before. That has such a powerful knock-on effect. Now all of those people are willing to try and work on another project where, you know, they can take a risk because they know that that's good for their career, not bad for their career. So we, we only have a few minutes left. I know we're, uh, you're on a bit of a time schedule here. How overall, what would you suggest to all the listeners out there to try and help, you know, no matter how complex their systems are, you know, to keep them running, to keep them, you know, manageable, you know, so that they don't get out of control when or if they do fail? What are your final thoughts? Um, Yeah, I guess, um, you know, my final thoughts are that, that, Ultimately, at the end of the day, this is really a, a human question and a, and a, and a personal question. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think we, we have the ability to, in the way we run our teams and the way we make decisions and the, in the way we, we organize our businesses to, to get better at this, right? It requires a, a kind of a humility and an openness to learning and an openness to failure. And, you know, that's not rocket science, right? But that doesn't make it, right. that doesn't mean it's, it's easy. Um, yeah, these these solutions that we talk about in the book, you know, um, being open to talk about the the unexpected things that arise and and what you can learn from that, um, you know, creating some sort of more structured ways of communicating about failures, um, paying attention to these small errors, those are solutions that are that are simple, but they're, they're, that doesn't make them easy. Um, and so I, I think that you know the the thing that I kind of go away with is a lot of us are in a position where we are both managed by someone. And we are managers, mm-hmm. right? And and most right. of us in that position, we sort of think of ourselves as very open to feedback from the people we manage. But most of us are, are you know, even if we have a great relationship with our bosses, we're probably pretty guarded in how we give them feedback. And so I, I think this is kind of the central paradox, right, where, where we humans are very social creatures. And so we've got to be, especially the more senior we get, we've got to be really um, sensitive to these kind of team and interpersonal dynamics. And if we can, can be a little bit more conscious in how we solicit feedback, you know, an open door policy mm-hmm. isn't enough. We've got to be actively out there uh, looking for bad news in our organizations so we can understand what problems are going to arise and, and solve them before they become really big issues. Well, that's interesting because it kind of takes us back to the very beginning where um, I mentioned a lot of people, you know, think of systems as, you know, IT and yet your recommendation isn't actually IT-focused. It's people-focused. Exactly. Yep, I think that's a great, a great summary. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that um, I know that was a key thing in your book here. So I, I'm glad we kind of went around that whole <laughs> circle and made it right back to the beginning. So, yeah. uh, Chris, I, I, I want to thank you very much. Uh, for taking the time and sharing your expertise and uh, congratulations on the book because um, I know it's relatively new, isn't it? So it's not that old. Yeah, so the, the hardback came out a year ago uh, in, in March, almost exactly a year ago, actually. Um, and the, the paperback is being released next week and it actually has a slightly different subtitle. So it's now Meltdown, uh, What Plane Crashes, Oil Spills, and Dumb Business Decisions Can Teach Us About How to Succeed at Work and at Home. Um, kind of a, a sort of a fun pivot for us. <laughs> well, congratulations on that then, you know, for next week. Thank you very much. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, thank you very much. And uh, I look forward to uh, maybe another book from the two of you on uh, maybe a part two on uh, some uh, the people side of things. Yes, totally. There, there are definitely, we definitely have ideas in the work, so I'll, I'll keep you posted. Oh, great. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Chris. Um, And to everyone listening, uh, again, if there is any topic you'd like to talk about, please feel free, send me an email. I do respond to all emails. Or if you want, if your company out there, you want to promote a a service or a product, uh, get in touch. Um, We have some uh, uh, opportunities for you. And we'll be in Phoenix at the Disaster Recovery Journal Conference, September 29th, October 2nd. And... Otherwise, thanks once again, Chris, for joining us. And to everybody out there, stay prepared, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Preparing for the Unexpected. Please tune in for another edition featuring your host, Alex Bullock, next Thursday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.